Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast and your authority on all things Leadville. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. We want to take you on a journey of storytelling of our now 38-year rich history. We also then want to follow that up with tricks and tips that will get you to that line come August and let our community members have a little say in that too. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll see you this summer. We'll see you at home in Leadville. Leadville family, we've got an exciting one for you today. We've got royalty in the form of the cutoff king and queen, Mike and Sandy Monahan from Laguna Beach. Not only that, but Mike also has 12 runs under his belt starting back in 1989. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we venture in with Mike and Sandy. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville, Leadville finds you. I'd like to ask you both, but Sandy, when did Leadville find you? Well, in 1989, my husband, Mike, was running Western States and due to some medical issues, had to drop out. He was terribly disappointed. So I encouraged him to come to Leadville. We were already planning to come here to to pace someone, but I encouraged him to call call and enter the race. So off we set in our trailer with two kids and our puppy and we camped all the way here while Mike trained and when we arrived it was just this beautiful place and I don't know it just we just fell in love with it almost immediately was it that true for you as well Mike did you fall equally in love with it well I was in awe with it uh we camped uh, at turquoise lake for a time and then we decided we needed a roof over our head so we got a room at the super eight and the only room they had was on the third floor and they don't have an elevator so i had to carry all of the stuff for two kids and my wife and i up to the third floor and i got to around the second floor and i had to sit on the suitcase because i couldn't make it anymore and at that point i realized i got myself into a lot of trouble <laughs> And, uh, but we did manage to get everything up in the room. And then later in town, we were having dinner and, uh, Sandy encouraged me to speak to someone who appeared to be an ultra runner in the restaurant we were in. And I did. And that changed everything for me because I had, uh, a new group of running friends that just suddenly appeared and they ran me all over the mountains, up and down the trails I'd never seen before, but they were all familiar with it. And it was wonderful training experience, Uh, except for perhaps a few instances. Uh, Cliff Davies ran me up uh, Mount Sherman, and we got to the top of it, and a a thunderstorm came in, and there was lightning going all over the place. And Cliff, being who he was, just ran down a scree slope, and I wasn't prepared to do that, so I had to take the trail. And uh, it was a very uh, exciting trip back down. Anytime you're out with Cliff Davies on your feet, it's an exciting trip up or down for sure. Um, Now, you two truly are family. Uh, And if memory serves me correctly, I think your first run and that experience that Sandy's talking about go back to 1989. 
Let's start with you, Mike, and your running. What was your your time in 1989? I was very fortunate. Uh, as it happened, that race uh, occurred on my anniversary, and my wife got me a anniversary present that will never be forgotten. She uh, arranged to have my best running buddy flown in from California, and uh, he showed up the night of, before the race and uh, introduced himself as my anniversary present. And we were able to uh, meet up at Winfield, and we ran all night long, mostly without flashlights, because that was back in the bulb (laughs) and battery days, and it was uh, hard to keep a flashlight going. So most of it was at, uh, most of the night was in the dark. And as it happened, that particular year, it snowed about eight inches so it covered up any trail that we might be able to work with. But in the end, it worked to my advantage. Uh, just having my friend with me uh, picked up my spirits. I ran a uh, 24-41 that year and uh, got the big buckle. It was quite an event. Well, okay. How many finishes do you have after that first one? Well, I have uh, 10 finishes altogether. I think I've started at... Uh, 12 or 13 times. So I've had a a couple of bumps in the road, but uh, all in all, it's been a a great, uh, a great course for me, a great experience. We've had all kinds of weather. We had one year when it rained for 20 hours. And of course I mentioned the snow and we've had uh, high winds. We've had just about everything, including the high river the one year. I think I shared a good amount of hours with you on the trail that year, the high river and the the long rains. I think I quit at uh, 12 hours in that year. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you kept it going. Uh, so of those, what what stands out year after year of all those 10 finishes or 13 starts for you and um, being Laguna people and so, so much closer to Western, what's kept you coming back here year after year? Well, obviously, uh, the nature of the race and the people and the family orientation uh, is is amazing here. And uh, it's not one that you find at, uh, at many races. Uh, you asked me about the most memorable. Of course, the first is always the most memorable. But probably uh, the one that uh, really got my attention was the High River year. Uh, because my son, who was nine years old at the time, was going to pace me over Hope. And we got up over uh, the Winfield side and came down the Twin Lakes side. And there was the river running at about 15 miles an hour. And it was probably about five feet deep. And I kind of wondered what I was going to do with him at that point. Because they had ropes stretched across the the river. And uh, as soon as he hit the water, his feet came up and he was just hanging onto the rope. And, of course, I had a death grip on one side and one of the search and rescue People had a death grip on the other side, and it kind of ran through my mind uh, what exactly I was going to do if he came off the rope. And I thought, (laughs) I could go back and tell my wife, um, I did the best I could. I really tried hard, and that didn't seem to work for me. And I thought, um, I could tell her, well, I feel bad too, but... um, all in all, I came with uh, to the conclusion that I would have to go down the river with Matt. We'd both let go of the rope and see what happens. At any rate, that was a memorable occasion. 
that that was a pretty wise choice, Mike. Um, now, and speaking of other memorable people, I mean, you and Sandy for sure have helped raise me, as have many people during your early years, such as Cliff Davies, Bill Finkbeiner, and Trace and Helen Klein of Western States came out to be our oldest woman fish finisher. Uh, Marshall Ulrich, Mace, uh, Harry and Debbie Dupree, uh, your your other buddy who didn't come out that first year, Mick Dunoff, El Burrow. Uh, do you, what stories do you have with some of those characters? Well, one that you haven't mentioned was really interesting. We had a uh, gentleman come from South Africa named Sipo. <laughs> How could you forget Sipo? And he uh, worked his way into the race. He came sort of empty-handed and uh, convinced your dad, that he was a really great runner, but he just didn't have enough money to enter the race. But here he was. So your dad comped him into the race. And he was very friendly, uh, open-handed kind of guy. And, and he made friends with everyone. But as it turned out, uh, he only made it to um, Outward Bound in the run. He brought a notebook with him that showed what a uh, wonderful runner he was and how he had finished comrades and all kinds of other big races and, and placed very high. And um, shortly after the race was finished and he dropped out at uh, Outward, or no, it wasn't Outward, but it was Half Moon, um, a, a phone call came from South Africa and they asked if it was true that Sipo had won the race because I guess he had told the people back home that he'd won the race and won $100,000 as a result of, uh, of his uh, uh, event. And... Uh, at that time, it was uh, told to his friends back in South Africa that, indeed, Sipo had not won the race. In fact, he'd not finished the race, and uh, we'd like part of that $100,000 back if they could send it to us. <laughs> but as it turns out, Sipo was uh, kind of a con man that, uh, that traveled around at different races. Of sorts. Didn't that end up getting him kicked out of his village as well? Well, running in South Africa is a very important activity, and they issue you a specific number that you use in all your races, and Sipo had his number uh, canceled as a result of that. So he could no longer race in South Africa. <laughs> well, yeah, and then you talk about Cliff Davies and being on the hills of uh – guy you might not want to be on the hills of going up or down anything. Yeah. Um, I remember meeting Cliff because I was so interested in climbing, and my dad let me know that he had a background in climbing. And then he quickly let us know that uh, the reason he'd quit climbing, because at the time he was doing so, it was with pitons and less fixed equipment. And he, on top of a, like, the third or fourth pitch of a climb came off like a zipper and it dropped him onto a shelf and shot his buddy up the face of the cliff on the other portion of the rope. And he decided within moments of his life to take up running. Now I'm sure you've got good stories with him. What are some of those? Well, uh, just to go along with the story that you started, I think Cliff was actually uh, ice climbing at the time that he fell and he was going up a uh, waterfall up in Canada. And uh, he and his buddy did, in fact, uh, he came off of the wall, off of the ice. And um, he uh, dislocated his shoulder when he slammed into the wall and he had to climb back up just using one hand, which 
uh, I don't even know how someone does that or even thinks of it. So Cliff was uh, quite a character and would do just about anything, but on the other hand, could do just about anything. He was an amazing, uh, amazing runner. Yes, he was one of those very talented, early mountaineer, rugged runner, well-rounded guys for sure. Yeah. Um, now, what other stories stand out to you? I hear, uh, I hear what maybe Sandy might want to tell these ones. I hear you've <clears throat> earned a now discontinued award called the Jackass Award. Sandy, do you want to shed some light on what would what that award is and what would earn Mike such a great title? Sure. Um, Mike gets uncomfortable when I share this story, but I'll go ahead anyway. Um, one year, Mike was running the race, and again, I had two young kids and a puppy, so it was right there at the beginning of his years here. And he came into Twin Lakes at, really with a great time. It was still light out. And he came in, the first thing he said is, I, I'm done. I'm quitting. This is no fun anymore. And I looked at him and I said, do you think I'm having fun? This is no effing fun for me either. He, so he sat down and he started ripping his shoes off. And as he would take them off, I would put new socks and new shoes on. He was sitting in the van at the time. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, you need dry shoes. You need dry socks. And pretty soon I coaxed him out of the van and I slammed the door shut and locked it, had the kids and the dog intact. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'll see you at the next aid station. And he wasn't really happy with me, um, but he did finish the race in a very excellent time. Uh, he was angry because he wasn't having fun, but I thought if I'm doing this, you know, you spent all these hours training for it, leaving your family behind, um, I'll be damned if I'm going to support you leaving your shoes on the trail. So there was that year. And there, there was another year where his good buddy Mick was pacing him. And at about half pipe or half moon at the time, we had walkie-talkies back then. And oh, yeah. Mick, Mick called me on the walkie-talkie, and he said, I can't get him up. He's sitting on the trail. And, and I said, put him, put him on the, you know, the walkie-talkie. And I got, he said, I could hear in the background, I don't want to talk to her. <laughs> don't don't do this. I don't want to talk to her. So um, I managed to entice him to come down the trail. I went up and met, met him and came back to the car. And he said, well, if you think this is so blank word easy, you pace me. I said, okay, we'll go to the fish hatchery and you can drop out there if you feel like it. So I went with him to the fish hatchery. We managed to scoot in and out of the check-ins. We were out on the road and he kind of looked around confused and he said, I'm still wearing my wristband. Why am I still here? Well, about that time, we had a crowd of people behind Mike, and they were just observing this, and Mike and I were having one hell of an argument, and he finally said to me, um, okay, I said, "You're okay, you can quit, but you have to tell Matthew. That, again, is our son, and uh, he didn't know it, but Matthew had been stashed up the trail about 200 yards. And I said, okay, that's fine. You can quit, but you have to tell Matt yourself. Okay, where is he? I said, well, he's up the trail about 200 yards. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, Mike, but he said, you bitch, only you would think of such an awful thing to do. And he took <laughs> off and got Matthew. And they all ran through and came into May Queen. And as they came through, Matthew looked at me. He was 14, I think, at the time. And he said, 
you don't even want to know what dad said out there. <laughs> and again, Mike finished. So Mike is usually a really easygoing, easy guy to pace, but he did have his moments. I'd like to interject that most of what you've just heard is a false perversion of the facts. None of that ever really happened. And I, I don't think she has any witnesses to back it up. <laughs> oh, there are plenty. Uh, yeah, you, you might be careful of that one, Mike. Yeah. Um, but okay, so there's times you don't want to see Sandy, but she's so involved. She's usually at that run camp. And um, now... You also get involved with some of the strangest stories I think we have in Leadville. <laughs> I happen to remember one time you came rolling in at uh, camp and uh, you were yelling something to the tune that you had a moth fly into your ear. And you were real happy to see all, everybody swarm in, including Sandy mm. With that one, do you mind telling us ba about that? Basically, day? let me interject. He came running in at top speed yelling, Sandy, get it out, get it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, <clears throat> running a sweep with another person, and we were uh, swapping dirty jokes or something, running in the middle of the night. Uh, it was getting a little bit chilly out, but it was still very nice, and we were having a peaceful time picking up runners as we went along and trying to get everybody in. And all of a sudden, I, I felt this feeling of something swooping in toward my head, and it went into my ear. I assumed it was a moth. I had no idea what it was. But it started flapping around in there, and it was very, very uncomfortable having a moth or whatever I was flapping around on the inside of your head. Uh, and I couldn't get it out. I tried everything I could think of to get this thing out of my ear. And finally, I just realized I had to have some help. So I finished the last part of the run at probably around six-minute miles <laughs> and came into the uh, to the camp where the people were. And they got me down on uh, probably the tailgate of a truck or something, and everybody shined their flashlights at my head. I think probably if there had been a space station up, they would have been able to see this spot down in the Rocky Mountains <laughs> where someone was having a moth removed from their ear. And uh, Ken Clover, uh, of course, had a pair of very large plastic tweezers in his glove compartment, and he decided that he could get it out. And with all the lighting, it was probably going to be easy. And he reached in with those big tweezers, and out came a wing. Of course, that was wiped off of the tweezers under my cheek. And then he reached in. Out came a leg. And finally, Sandy said, I think we need to take him to the emergency room. And at that, Ken shoved the tweezers even further into my ear and clamped down on that thing and pulled it out and was still flapping with the wing that was left. And there was a communal gasp as the thing came out of my ear and was flapping around I found a sense of deep relaxation as a result of that. I'd like to add that Mike's every part of Mike's body was twitching except his head. He was like a moth flapping on the chair. And when as soon as that moth came out, he just relaxed and almost melted. It was pretty bizarre. Well, anytime I'm out at night now, I have earbuds in just <laughs> simply because it's an ode to Mike and I don't want to go down that road. Um, now... We've got tons of great stories from all your runs, but let's get Sandy a little more involved here. Now, you all 
you know, you come from one of the most beautiful places in the world, Laguna, California. I make a lot of jokes that if you live there, where do you go on vacation? Well, for you all, it's Leadville. But so here you are, you're, you're fresh off the boat. It's 1989. You roll into town. Um, you pop in to, to meet Ken and Mary Lee at their then office at 6th and Harrison. And what happened, Sandy? What was that like? Well, Marilee and I immediately clicked because we're both organizers and we both like to dig in and get things done. So we had coloring books and crayons for my kids and we sat down and I helped her at the time. There was no such thing as a computer. She had a typewriter and I can type. And every time you'd add somebody to the list, you had to start over and type a new list with a new name and a new order and a new bib number. So we worked, Mike would be out on the trails running. And when he came back, Marilee and I, I think spent, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day together putting it together, putting notebooks together so that the announcer could have something to say about the people as they finished. And I thought to myself, you know, why aren't we using a computer? And um, so we just had a great time together. We really bonded. And at the end of the first year's race, we all ended up in the back room with the drop bags. And the the, the theory was we were going to pull out any perishable foods, but there was a lot of loot to be had. And we had a good time with that. So the next year I came out and Marilee and I had communicated and um, this is when we started to feel like a part of the family, not just the Leadville family, but the intimate part of the family. Our son after that first year had open heart surgery and as a result of our, our involvement with this race, we had tremendous support from near and far. And it was just really warm. It was just an amazing experience to have all these new friends and family supporting us through a very scary time in our life. So we came out the next year and I literally brought my office with me. I brought an old Mac SE 20. I brought a printer that was dot matrix that went clackety, clackety, clackety and a database. And I, we sat down together and I showed merrily the merits of a computer and being able to organize and add and subtract, et cetera. And of course, Ken, you know, cowboy Ken, <laughs> he kept calling it the magic box and he would walk in and snap his fingers and say, tell me Lala, how many people from Arkansas are there? <laughs> and, you know, he was always surprised when we could come up with the number. So, we kind of or reorganized things in the 20th century. <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah. So immediately you're partnered up with Mary yeah. Lee. You're influencing major league day-to-day -day operations. Yeah. Uh, I remember some other uh, real fun things and huge changes we've had because of Matt. Now, I you know, most kids were collecting football, baseball cards, whatever. Yeah. Matt was collecting signatures from ultra runners. Autographs. We have talk a, about that. Yeah, we had he, Matthew thought these were big league NBA all stars, and you all are for sure. Absolutely. But he has. We have a collection at home from every race that Matthew ever attended, and he would go around and get autographs from everyone. And he made himself well known. He was quite a runner back then, a distance runner. 
Um, and he was invited to do all kinds of fun things, just pace people. Jim O'Brien, he crewed for him at Western <laughs> States. He, he paced Jim O'Brien at Western States. He made great friends with Ann Trayson. Ann Trayson took him out running, and they went up the backside of Hope Pass together. With who was it that he was with? Well, at the Vermont 100 mile race, um, he um, <clears throat> was introduced to Eric Clifton, who had never met him before. And Eric said to Matthew, Well, Matthew, I, I was wondering when I would get to meet you. Why don't you come over here and sit at my table? Let's have dinner together. Yeah. And it was a, a wonderful experience to have, uh, to have ultra runners be so, uh, so warm and friendly to, to even little kids that are at the, yeah. uh, at the races. Yeah. So, so as years went on, Matt, of course, went with us to all these races and we were in Vermont. Mike was running the Vermont hundred miler. And on the radio, we kept hearing about a 10 K race and Matt was chomping at the, you know, the bit, he really wanted to run that race. So we figured it out where I could leave at one aid station, take him to the start of this race and then meet him at the finish and get back in time to meet up with Mike. So we went to the race and, um, he introduced himself to this man who was from Quantico. He was in the Marines. And um, I asked him if he would be kind enough just to keep his eye on Matt for the race because Matt was only, I think, 12, maybe 10 or 12. And he did. And Matt went, ran the race and he finished his age group, which was 19 and under. And he, and he won the age group. So I called Marilee and I said, you know, I haven't, I, Matt ran this fit. 10k it was really fun you know I, and that's where it went and I arrived in town and Ken came up to me and he said you're in charge the 10k is yours we're going to have a 10k this year and so I put together the 10k we used popsicle sticks with numbers on them to keep track of the the times that people came in and Matt really enjoyed that he got an award he was now a part of the big leagues so it, that's what family does for each other it was really Great. And today, I wish that I had signed a contract so I could get a percentage of the take from the 10K because they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I don't know. I think they had 500 this past year. It's quite a bit more popular than it was for sure. Yeah. Right? There's even a, a very little kids race that just goes a couple blocks right. down and back. Right. So. Right. Well, and then other special days. I think earlier we mentioned the story about Mike being tired. Um now, I think that was extra sensitive because I think that particular year, the race was actually on a very special day for you and Mike. What day would that have been? Well, sure. Every year it's on our anniversary. Who doesn't want to spend their anniversary for 25 hours plus in the woods chasing a grown man running in the dark? I think that's a great way to celebrate your anniversary. We just had our 47th here this past year so yeah okay, so you, you had your 47th here this past year our first one was our 15th we are currently at your 32nd year anniversary uh -huh. just of you helping raise me and being a part <laughs> of this race um now when or when did mike trade his running shoes and you trade your crew chief boots for the titles of cutoff king and queen well, I think that was in about 2004. We, I, Mike hadn't observed it because he was on the other side running, but I had observed various 
cutoffs being done. And, uh, you know, they were usually just very cut and dry. It was like, time, you're out, you're done. And one year in particular, I saw some ugliness going on. As a matter of fact, Mike was running the, writing the cutoffs, and um, I all but tied up the cutoff person so that he could squeak through May Queen. But as it turned out, that was the year that Matt ran him in, and they were talking about me on the trail. And he got through with about two minutes to spare, so it wasn't necessary. So I, I went to Marilee and Ken. I said, if you ever need to have somebody do cutoffs, I'd like to step in. And I wanted to be able to do it with a different a different feeling, a different attitude, not like you're a loser, but with you're a winner. You were able to do this and get here, and congratulations, and I admire you, and you should be very proud of what you've done. And I felt like something like a, a bit of an ambassador for the race, to not make that a negative thing, although it is, of course, but to do it with thoughtfulness and and to really stop and think about what this means to these people most of these people this is their vacation they've they planned for it for a year training they've got their whole family involved and friends it's not inexpensive to make that trip here from different parts of the country and the world and they needed to be appreciated instead of cut off with coldness well not to a very, very, very intimidating role for you to take. And um, I've been there to witness how <clears throat> graceful you all do it and exactly what it does mean to those athletes in the way that you do it. Uh, being a champion of that last guy or gal towing that line myself and often talking about them um, and being the driving force of a lot of, you know, my courage out there, what has lived with you from performing this task year over year in terms of, you know, their end, in terms of, you know, when they give you feedback? What's really lived with you in those moments? Well, you know, it, it really, after all these years, it's really amazing to me how when I approach people, they're, they're not intimidated by me. Most people know when their race is over and they're, they're gracious. They're, as you, the word you used is gracious. I have very few people be angry with me. I have a few debates on the course. I handle it, you know, patiently. But ne mm -hmm. only there has been one time where it was over the top, and there there was, I believe, a legitimate death threat involved. <laughs> um, it. We were at half pipe and the ski patrol runs half pipe beautifully. And um, a, a man was running the race. He was a Navy guy and he shouldn't have been on the course. He had severe kidney problems. And his wife came driving up the trail in her big SUV. And I was the first person she saw. It, and it was as if she had imprinted on me because <laughs> it was all my fault. And my God, she called me every name but Sandy. And um, I was able to deal with that and everything. And ski patrol kept saying, you know, do you want us to remove her? And I thought, no, let her just lash it out. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with her husband and what kind of care he needed, et cetera. And um, we got out of the tent and I just stood there and let her batter me. And she said, you know, I crossed my arms, so I was smug, et cetera. And then she said I needed to find Jesus. <laughs> But then her next sentence was, I'm a nurse and I'm 
not ashamed to say that if I could get you down and stomp your brains in the ground and spread them around, I'd be grateful. And that was when I gave the ski patrol permission to put her away. So that was it. Another time, someone offered me their black card from American Express for real, <laughs> card in hand, um, if I would just let their runner through. And I, I'm proud to say I didn't do it. <laughs> Boy, yeah, better you than me. I might have taken that one. You all know that for sure. Well, it, if you when you let people through unreasonably, it doesn't do them any favors. I like to tell people, I can, I can let you through here, but I can't stop that gun from going off at thirty hours. So I'm doing you. I'm doing what's best because that's just a long way to go to hear the gun go off when you're at the bottom of the hill. Well, and that's a good way of putting it. Is I mean, you're fired up because everything you've put toward everything everybody that's been around you's put toward all years coming to a very quick and right. un unwanted climax right and what that person's not realizing in that time is the person ahead of them and sweep and you know all the other lives right. that then become in jeopardy so yes absolutely for sure now another thing is you all have been involved literally souped and nuts with everything we've done job function wise in the early years. <laughs> and what we all know is only constant in life is change. Now for you all and for <clears throat> my parents, that change has been a reduction in duty and it's a very welcomed, but in the past from things from drop bags to you know, the, the finisher shirts. I want you to enlighten these people, our family members, about the stories <laughs> they don't know and some of the things that used to occur in those early years. Well, equipment has changed considerably. Um, as Mike uh, mentioned earlier, flashlights didn't work earlier because the cold would kill them. Well, um, I can remember Mike's first race sitting in the middle of the road with five flashlights that were all broken, trying to put them together as he was coming down the road. Uh, and it was crazy. One year, um, out of necessity, I went to Walmart and I got a fluorescent light that was like a little shop light, only it was only about six inches long. And I hot glued it to neoprene with Velcro so that they could wear it on their across under their chest to shine light on the trail. And Ken and Mike ran the race with that and thought it was great. Now, if only I could have you know, patented that thing, I could, again, have some money in my pocket. Um, I used that light for a second in 2011. Did and you? And to this day, it's still the best light. Oh, that's, ever that's good. That's good there. to hear. Well, anyway, so, you know, it was necessity was the mother of invention. They didn't have all these n nutritional supplements they have today. If you needed salt, I went to the pharmacy and I got capsules and filled it with table salt. You know, I mean, it worked, right? And we would all get together at various uh, crew areas along the race, and we would swap equipment gear and, uh, shall we say, medical supplies at, to <laughs> enhance the run of our runners. You know, I would be out there with a little camp stove making grilled cheese sandwiches for somebody coming in or, or cooking bacon because it was such a great thing to use. And it was just really, it wasn't as technical as it is now. It was really about man and nature and crew. And that was it. There wasn't all of the gear and the equipment and the fancy stuff that everybody has and today. And there was a lot of sharing that went on. A lot oh, of sharing. Another, 
and a real community out there. Everybody was helping somebody else. You could stand up and say, does anybody have a Band-Aid? Does anybody have a pair of scissors? And someone would be right there for you. I think we did a good job this year with your help kind of returning to that this year. Absolutely. This year was just a banner year. It was. I was really grateful with the, um, the ear of your race director, Tamara, and Mike Melly. We sat down and tried to revisit years past and they listened and they heard us and they returned to some of the old school methods. Uh, and it really, I think it really helped the race revisit the community that we've always had and enjoyed. There's probably something to be said in the earlier days of uh, how the sweatshirts were uh, oh, gosh, put yes. together. Yeah, sometimes we're a community doing things we didn't want to do. Why don't you tell us more about that, Mike? Okay. Sandy well, was more involved. We, well, yeah, she were you were kind of still out on the trail yeah, with Dad. Yeah. We the we they I I could never believe all the things that Ray, Ken and Marilee pulled together with their own ingenuity and stick to itness and energy to take care of these runners, and that included everything from meals. I mean, you name it. But one of the things was every runner would get a finisher sweatshirt. Now, remember, this was back in the 80s. And with their name and their finisher's time on the sweatshirt. And we would deliver it to them at the award ceremony. Now, if you think about that, that means you have a whole bunch of letters alphabetically set out. And you... Individual. Individual. Velvet feeling letters. Letters. And you would put them on the sweatshirt with their time and put it in a heat press and do it. Now, that is enormously time-consuming. If you ran out of an, an F, you'd have to convert an E to an more, F. Exactly. <laughs> even more time-consuming when you have to change an 8 into a 3 yeah, or an M into an right. N. That's right. And we managed to do it every year just in the nick of time. But it meant we were up all night long before that. I mean, sometimes we'd be up 40 hours to, to take care of all the things that were necessary to do. We were all punch happy by the time it was over. No one needed a drink because we were all drunk on it, no energy. But, you know, it, it was just an amazing thing how many people just pitched in and helped with all of that stuff with no technology involved. We well, probably were lucky we had a heat press. For <laughs> sure we were. And I remember, too, like all of us kids, Mary Lee's daughter, yes. Megan, myself, and your children, we would we would have to go through the drop bags. Yeah, and we thought it was a treat. We were being rewarded, but yeah. it, it was so we'd get rid of the bad goopy bananas. bananas. And, yeah, yes. But the one thing I remember about Mike is we had that. We came up with that collection of flashlights. That's right. and Mike thought he was boy. Did Mike get real interested? And, and then like. The knock on the door. As, yeah, as soon as he lit up like Christmas, we were in that back room on the side of the building in the office where the storage was. They were brand new LED flashlights, nobody which were new knew. on the scene at the time. Yeah, nobody knew about that room. And what happened, Sandy? There was a knock on the door, and somebody stuck their head in and said, um, we're looking for our drop bag. It's got flashlights in it. And Mike looked like, shh. <laughs> but <laughs> we, uh, of course, gave him back his flashlights. But it was so funny because we all thought we'd found a treasure. We have found treasures. We found iPads <laughs> and iPod, not iPads, iPods, um, all kinds of 
it was crazy what people would put in a drop bag. Let's just. I mean, I remember it really started with the Oakley blades back in the day because they were so interchangeable. And Uh yeah, I thought the most amazing thing I saw in the drop bags were uh, birth control pills. (laughs) I mean, this is this is a real hopeful experience. I think. I mean, you gotta stay on your schedule, Mike. That's right. (laughs) I mean, it might be days out there. We don't know. It could be. Well, you've both helped raise and influence me. Our families uh, not only see each other year-round, spend a lot of time together, a lot of holidays together. Mike, you and I almost uh, practically share a birthday. Mm -hmm. But there's another part of our family that you've adopted from day one that grew out of the 100, which was the Leadville Trail 100 Legacy Foundation family. Um, you've supported that both monetarily and with your time. Can you tell me a little more about why you do that and what that means to you? Well, uh, from the first year, I remember the, um, the Leadville, what was it with, where they had the kids, the kids center? Oh, the, yeah, the, the center is what it was called. And and we do the Christmas. And my son would go down. And he would, you know, we believed in the community and he would go down and play with the kids and work with the kids and push the swing and pet the pet pig. As a kid. As a kid, I'm, as a child. And I was always just so amazed that Canamira Lee. Orville, wasn't it? Yeah, Orville. <laughs> Orville the pet pig. Canamira Lee. Um, there were people that thought they were getting rich on this race and that was anything but the truth. They returned always from the beginning a profit from their race back into the community. And that meant at that time, you know, there weren't as many participants or weren't as much, wasn't as much money involved, but that meant Christmas presents for every child in Leadville and a Christmas party with Santa and food for families that didn't have food, maybe repairing an appliance for a family that needed. I mean, it was just really such um, a charitable with love action that I just fell in love with it. And then the the legacy grew from very small. I think the first year we did prayer flags mm-hmm. and we had all of the kids from us, all of our children were out there selling prayer flags and that was money for the legacy. And it just took off from there. The prayer and flags were to be put up on Hope Pass the, to support the runners that were in the race. Right. You could buy a piece of cloth that we all sat down and cut out and with a pen a marking pen, you could write a message to your family member or runner and they would take it up to Hope Pass and they would fly the prayer flags for everybody to see. And it was just a real communal community thing. And the legacy has grown beyond anyone's dreams to support in big ways. Kids going to um, further education and with no no application involved, just a, a desire, and no you know no you have to graduate from college, no you have to get good grades. It was here. This is for you. If you want to be a mechanic, go find somebody to help you be a mechanic. Given with love and kindness to support someone's dreams, because they realized that um, this community had supported their dream. And, and that's why we choose to be involved with the legacy. Well, and I do love that, you know, today we don't take donation for those prayer flags, but that means so much to so many of our athletes still that they still t- stand tall and proud today. Right. Um, and yes, it's a very 
intimate thing that we need to take a pause and just thank all of you, our family members that are listening, because, you know, that thousand dollars that went with those kids to further education that now is two thousand dollars is directly from all of you as well. And um, we couldn't make those differences without you. Absolutely. Um, now, to bring this back to a little a little less tearjerker of a point, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. We've had a ton of fun going down memory lane, um, but you do our crew talk at the race after our big speech every year. And yes, you really champion that. You came to us to champion that. You wanted to do that. You wanted to take that on these people. Your family members mean so much that that's important to you. So I'd really like to take a little time with you or both of you. Mike definitely knows a whole lot of, about this race being on the other end as well. Uh, what advice can you give these people to get to any of our finish lines this coming summer? Well, the, the reason I wanted to do the crew briefing was because I remembered myself as a brand new person here and not knowing where to go, what to do, or what to take, or how to do it. And I wanted to give some support to people that were fresh and eager and confused. So I put together a list of tips and hints and would go through that. And I think it has been very helpful to a lot of people. And I also go through each aid station and tell them how to get there and give them pointers and and take questions until everyone's out of breath. Mike? Well, and people uh, are helped to understand just what it's like here in Leadville, because some of them have only been here for a few days, and they don't realize that in the course of the race, you can get every kind of weather imaginable, from lightning <laughs> strikes to snow to uh, uh, monsoon-quality rain. Uh, it can happen all in the course of an evening. And to help people understand how to get ready for that and be prepared for it. Or even something as simple as finding out how to get around to the different uh, aid places where you can meet your runner is very, very important for someone who's just brand new to this situation. Mm -hmm. When you were new out here, what's probably the biggest, or any of the times, but that might be more memorable, what's the biggest mistake you made? And then I'd like to hear... The same from Sandy from a crew perspective. Well, I think the biggest element that hit me in my very first year, because, you know, the year went, the very first run I did here was, it went like a storybook. It was really amazing. A and storybook the, I can't get to. <laughs> and the, 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 the major hurdle that we ran into, of course, was flashlights at the time, because it was, it was snowing out. It was very cold. And you couldn't keep a flashlight going. The batteries would die immediately. Uh, the jostling from the trail would make the bulbs go out uh, without any predictability. So you're constantly trying to mess with flashlights so you could see where you were going. Um, there weren't a lot of glow sticks out at that time. <laughs> no, no. And so finding your way along the trail was a major thing. And keeping a flashlight going was major. So I would like to say also, back to your question about the crew briefing, we were fortunate enough that man that Mike referred to earlier as that we met in a restaurant, Jay Balenson, um, had done the race previously, and he was an enormous help. He took me and Mike out on the trail and showed us where each aid station was. He was our little guide, 
And I thought, gosh, if I hadn't had that help in that first year, I would have been totally lost. And so I hope, Jay, you're listening to this. It was really an impressive and remarkable start to an introduction to this race. Um, so I, in my way, want to be that for others that are here. Give them a little confidence going out on the morning of the race and not feeling panic for 30 hours that they don't know where they are and what's going to happen next. So that's the purpose, really, of that. I'm, I was grateful for that, and I'd like to repay that. You pay it a hundredfold. Oh. When's the one you were caught like a deer in headlights trying to help Mike? Oh, my gosh. Okay. One year, our friend Mick Donoff came running down off of Winfield on the Winfield side back when you could uh, crew at Sheep's Gulch. And he said, Mike's having an asthma attack up there. And it was raining. And I threw on a pair of uh, rain shoes without socks and threw a poncho over my head and took an inhaler I had. And I'm not a runner. I'm a hiker. But I blasted up that trail with this inhaler to rescue my husband. And he looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing up here? <laughs> of course, I wanted to strangle him because I was ready to die. And uh, But that was the deer in the headlights. Like, oh, my God, I didn't think of the inhaler. Um, well, now, in those early days, it wasn't the same, of course, but did you ever miss him? Or No. Okay. And when, when I talk to people at the crew briefing, I always tell them to keep a get a notebook and write down what your runner's going to want at each aid station, and when you finish crewing for them, get in your vehicle, look at the notes, see what you need, put it in your backpack, go immediately to the next spot, and... Set yourself up and then do your gabbing with people. And never, never, never allow your runner to go up the mountain without oh, yeah. rain gear and without a flashlight. Right. Now, but, that's great advice. Why do you say that? If you <laughs> well, because well, one year... Uh, the, I've it, never experienced it myself, <laughs> but I've seen others and they were in trouble. It's true. Mike's wife wouldn't let him experience it, but... Um, we talked to Wear Blue to people about that. And one year, the race started, it was going to be a sunny, glorious, beautiful day. And people started out in tank tops and shorts. And at uh, Pipeline, I knew that there was a bad, bad weather coming in. And I sat there with a box of trash garbage bags and cut ar armholes and neck neck holes in and was handing them out to people. And they're looking at me like, oh, who are you? That This is so stupid. And I'm like... Take this. Right. And we lost 49% of the race at Twin Lakes that year because they of hypothermia. Well, yeah, wasn't that the year, Mike, that all of you were sprawled out on the mountain trying not to get struck by, by lightning? lightning. And right. I mean, you had to wait that storm out. It was like, yeah. That's so, right. So that there were a lot of deer in the headlights that right. year, and they thought I was this insane woman screaming at them with trash bag in my hand. But on a lighter note, I think that um, you asked me uh, memorable people that I had encountered in this race, and I don't mm -hmm. think that any are, are more um, unforgettable than your dad, Ken <laughs> Clover. And early in the race, and early in the year, early years of the race, I think perhaps Ken wasn't as politically correct as as he is now, and he would say things about the race that. Uh, well, became very interesting. And I, I recall once he was being interviewed and someone asked him, well, how would you, uh, 
it's a, it's an out and back course. I mean, is it that much different coming back as it is going out? And he said, well, going out, going out, your legs are right underneath you and, and you got a song in your heart and the birds are out there in the trees and the sun is in your face and everything is wonderful. And, and going out, you just can't describe it. It's like a day in the mountains and, and you get to Winfield and it's like, like you had a brand new girlfriend and then coming back, coming back, it's, it's nasty and, <laughs> And it's night out, and there's rain in your face, and it's cold. It's so cold. And you're coming back, and you're falling off of logs into the stream. And come, coming, going out is kind of like having a girlfriend, and coming back is like having a wife. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely sounds like that father of mine for sure. <laughs> I think my mom would say he's been the difficult one every time he's come back. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to comment on that, <laughs> well, but I've been there for it. <laughs> I think we've all been there for it, or most, uh, probably most everybody on this uh, <laughs> listening has been there for it. Well, you all, it's always a pleasure. I'm really glad that we're actually catching up in Leadville off-season right now and, and not over the phone. Um, I've got to ask you both, what do you think of when you hear the word Leadville? Okay, I I think of my family. I do. Mm-hmm. Y- your your family is like This is where m- our friends are. Often closer to me than my blood family. Um I I have shared some some real high points of my life with this family and I've shared some really low points with this family. And we have always been there for each other no matter what the question is so we don't just come for the race we come all times of the year to visit our family and to love Leadville well that's very heartfelt and I think that we would definitely agree it goes out same direction for our family we we make one good big one for sure I agree now Mike what about you what do you hear of when you think when you hear the word Leadville well, what Sandy said, obviously, is the first thing. It's the people that are here, and uh, and it's the feeling that you get when you're surrounded by uh, the kinds of people that you run into here. And you, I think if you, if you spend any time at all on the main street of Leadville, you run into almost everybody in the world, it seems like. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, it's, it's an amazing place. Um, but the, the first thing that just pops into my mind is Main Street, Leadville, seeing the buildings. The second thing, of course, is Hope Pass. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not many things that equal Hope Pass, and you see it from a lot of different directions when you're driving into town, and it's always up there smiling down on you. <laughs> yeah, there's there's always hope when you're there's in Leadville. There's always hope. That's right. <laughs> well, but Thank you both so much once again. Um, it's been a real treat. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else you want to share with your family members? Well, I remember you as a little boy <laughs> sitting on the floor of the office, drawing and sketching and running any errand that was asked of you with a smile on your face with Megan. <laughs> and I remember both of you, you and Megan, with love. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps it up. Um, 
For the rest of you that maybe haven't found Leadville or these experiences, we look forward to giving them to you. We look forward to hosting you here at home, here in Leadville. Well, Leadville family, I promised your royalty, and there you have it. Thank you so much for joining me with the Cutoff King and Queen Mike and Sandy Monahan. I hope you enjoyed your time with them as much as I did. But remember, when you come out here in August to find that line for yourself, avoid them at all costs because we want you to get that buckle, but we want you to learn as much as you can from Mike and Sandy Monahan. Until then, we'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville.